I'm your host, Luyando. I would like to welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Shakira. Luyando, it's such a pleasure to check in with you this evening, South African time. I'm glad to hear that. So for the people that don't know who you are, take us through the earliest days to who you are now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always get that question um, and I'll try, I always try to spice it up uh, as I go along as well. Um, But, you know, I think growing up, I was just a regular kid, really. Um, But I would say that I always had big dreams and and big aspirations. And I think that's what set me apart in my family, but also set me apart among my peers. Um, I remember I was in grade four, which is around 10 uh, 10 years old or so. And I had a party at school. My dad, actually, it was so special. He got me um, a Teletubby cake, an ice cream cake. And the teacher at that time, Mrs. Zili, said, um, What's, what did you wish for um, as the class sang for me? And I said, I want to be the president of South Africa. And, uh, of course, the class burst into laughter. But I think, you know, what's always so incredible is those people who have so much of faith in you. And Mrs. Zini told my mom during parents' evening, do you know your daughter wants to be the president of South Africa? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, in my formative years and jumping into my teen years, I started to look at the discrimination around me. Because what the apartheid system did in South Africa was put us, according to our race groups, that's essentially where we were forced to live. And so you were only really exposed living with one particular race group. But I always felt that I never fitted in because, look, I came from a family who was slightly or more disadvantaged than others in the community. Um, and so we stood out like a sore thumb. And I began to see that. I began to see the way my, my father was treated because he he had a disability. And essentially, his disability marked him and marked the family as well. And so then I started to grapple with this, you know, subtle sort of discrimination that you're finding. Yeah. Um, but you, you don't sort of register when you're much younger. I then also faced a few class, um, uh, a few class prejudices. For example, when I won a very big award at school, um, one of the teachers, as I went up to get it, um, he actually said, "Oh, she can't afford her school fees," um, and you know that really broke me down. Yeah. And so I was sort of taught, or I guess society conditions you to think that. Um, your background is embarrassing if it's not up to a certain standard. Um, But as we look back, you know, I think I'm the most grateful for those years and those experiences because it made me who I am. And, um, uh, you know, I always tell the story of how I sat at my dad's hospital bed because he had so many medical conditions. Um, And that's really where my passion for healthcare came in. Um, and so the, the the plan was to be the president and then uh, or the minister of health and then the president. I then jump into university, get into the medical space, um, because you know essentially you're told when you're younger that if you're you're smart, 
um, your trajectory will essentially be uh, medicine or accounting. But I, I knew it was not for me. Uh, long story short, I eventually, um, you know, made my way through university. And as I was driving home the other day, I was just thinking about it, that when you work for something, life is so much sweeter when you achieve it. And despite all of the odds, I completed my PhD in 2017 um, and, and then entered the working space. But Leando, let me not go on forever. Um, in, in some... In some, I'm now a, a public health practitioner, um, but I also consider myself an extreme all-rounder. Um, and I recently began to pursue acting. So again, yeah, let me stop there for now. And I'm sure no, you're asking a question. <laughs> I was actually so tuned in. And you, if you'd like, you can continue building up to where you are today. As in, because there's so many things that have already popped out. Already I can take note that you have been optimist from the get-go, from the time you were young, you had a very optimistic view, even though your position in society was somewhat harsh, you were able mm -hmm. to see the silver lining and everything. And with what you're doing today, I can literally see a direct link with that. Mm -hmm. And maybe to build on to, for example, the story you told with your teacher, can you try highlight some who inspired you or who were your heroes or role models growing up and how did they influence you with the person you are today? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry to be so South African-centric when I talk about this, but I think that, no worries. Uh, you know, growing up, um, I can't explain it. There was always something magical that when I learned about Nelson Mandela and when I learned about the power of democracy, my hair stands up and it stands up until today. Um, because I think that the, the liberation struggle in South Africa was so powerful. Um, and so I drew a lot of inspiration reading a lot of history over time um, and, and drawing on different um, veterans in the struggle. And uh, you know, it's very close to Mandela because he's sort of known by everyone. But there were 11 other Robben Island prisoners who joined him. And a significant part of my life has been um, being part of the Ahmed Kathrada Youth Program. And Uncle Kathy, as we know him, spent uh, 24 or 26 years in Robben Island with Nelson Mandela. He was the youngest Robben Islander. He went in at 34 and came uh, came out in his 50s. Um, and, and, you know, I was so fortunate to be part of um, the Kathy Foundation, and I've grown from strength to strength in this foundation, and it's really built on the ideals of non-racism. Um, and unfortunately, we're living in a world where non-racism seems very utopian, but it's something I am deeply inspired by. Um, and, and I also learned from Uncle Kathy the values of um, modesty, the values of simplicity. Um, you would see that many other people enrich themselves post-apartheid being over, but not Uncle Kathy. He and Mandela and others in their cohort also stepped down after four years in power. And that's very rare to see on the continent. So um, I'm deeply and fundamentally shaped by the liberation heroes, but also heroines um, in, in South Africa. I see. And 
maybe let me shift it now to somewhat focus on your optimism, as I mentioned earlier. Your view on Africa's future has been bright and is bright. And mm. one may say you're optimistic. How does this fare with the current reality you live, we live in today? Look, I'm not going to lie to you and your listeners. <laughs> it would be wrong of me to do so after it's talking about morality and ethics and all of that. It's, it's not always easy to be, to be optimistic. Um, in the healthcare system, for example, you're deeply frustrated and it's difficult to see what the solutions are and how we navigate it. And you sort of brought down bureauc- by bureaucracy. And, and, you know, senior people and other people who don't want new, fresh ideas, who don't want change. And I've always been very passionate about this continent. And that's another thing that I can't explain. But, you know, having worked and met so many young people across the continent, that's what keeps me positive. Um, it's that vision. It's that energy, I believe. It's the beauty of this continent. It doesn't matter if you're sitting um, looking at a you know a beautiful mountain in Rwanda or the vast Lake Victoria or Lake Tanganyika, you're sort of struck by just how much of potential this continent has. Um, but I can't sway away from the fact that at a policy level, at a financing level, um, and at a continental level, we are being failed, and uh, it's it's really going to be up to us to push back and push back slowly and push back hard. But I'm very excited about the recent protests we've seen this year by young people. I think the young people are coming and they come big time. Um, It's just a matter of time. I do agree with you on that. And seen in Africa, there is a culture around intergenerational dialogue. It is a distinct between the youth group versus the elderly, and it's been, well, speaking from my point of view as a Zambian, I, growing up, I was told not to speak when elders are speaking, and it somewhat carried on. Even when I became a teen, I was like, wait, the rule still applies to me. Even as a young adult, I still feel like the rule still applies to me and not getting my voice heard. How important is it for the youth of Africa to somewhat get their voices heard and what's being done to get that happen? Get that happen? Look, there's been a few initiatives on, on bridging intergenerational dialogue. And I've spoken about my interactions with uh, the struggle veterans in South Africa and how that shaped me. Yeah. But I think what we also have to sit down and be honest and critical about is the the type of intergenerational leadership we're having, because what we have is essentially, and by a large majority, a, cont- a continent led by people who are questionable. Um, and when we're talking about intergenerational dialogue, we've got to talk about quality as well. Um, what are we learning from the seniors? We don't just go around and, and you know, really give sainthood uh, to, to the elders in the room. And essentially, that's what's being done. Um, I can speak a little bit about my experience in the African Union. Um, and I'm quite, a trouble- <laughs> I'm quite a troublemaker. This year, I have sure. sort of reached enough, the point of saying enough. My role is nothing but window dressing. Um, and I, you know, along with some colleagues, 
but I took the liberty to write directly to the chairperson of the African Union. And I said, I want a response by close of day, a certain day of the week or month. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually the pressure we put led us to going to Addis Ababa with very high level officials in the AU. And I was, I think, you know, it's not made big newspapers and it's not made international mm-hmm. news, but the fact of the matter is that we're starting to chip away at a very big bureaucracy. Um, and we get into this meeting and they shout at us and say, how dare you write a letter to the chairperson of the African Union? Who do you think you are? And we were berated and we were scolded and they even told us, um, you know, use call us excellencies and call this person this designation. And there were four of us that, that stood up and said, no, um, if in the private sector I can write to a CEO of a company, then us as young people must be able to write to the chairperson of the African Union, and he and his office must respond. So, so the long story or the long answer to what you asked me is the, the spaces are not there, the quality of leadership is not there, but I remain optimistic that within every circle that we have, they are very passionate young people to begin to break this down. Yeah. Well, clearly you are causing a ruckus, and I'm glad to know there's someone backing up the youth, I guess, of this continent. It is a tough mountain to climb, but at least just you moving forward and moving up with it. I do commend you for that. Mm-hmm. So I would like to shift it to the... Health con- the healthcare conditions within mm-hmm. South Africa and Africa as a whole. You've been a whistleblower highlighting the problems Africa has been facing with our healthcare issues, and this was even prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Do you think the pandemic has brought the urgency of your initial cries, or is nothing really being done mm-hmm. in terms of the improvement, the needed improvement of the South African healthcare and Africa as a whole? Look, there's been some progress. And I mean, of course, living in, in a country like South Africa, we are a little bit um, better positioned in terms of resources than, than the rest of the continent. And so what was exciting to see is suddenly, bam, you're seeing an increase in testing like never before. We've never seen HIV testing to that level before, you know. And in a quick, short space of time, we see the health system um, getting ready ASAP uh, to deal with COVID-19. We're seeing facilities set up to deal with COVID-19. For me, what's been the most exciting that's missing from the response um, and from the world, really, is how we seeing multi-sectoral effort come together. The president stood up and said people will be given social grants during this time. People will be given food packages during this time. Uh, the Department of Education was trying to push online learning. Um, and so we saw different sectors starting to work together, and I think that was really exciting. But then by the same token, um, you know, I do think that for we always talk about things on this continent. And so this year we were talking about manufacturing our own vaccines. But look at the rest of the world. They've already put in orders for the vaccine. They've already put in funding for the vaccine. And now we again on the end of asking for donations and Africa's right behind when it comes to vaccines. We're seeing countries deny COVID-19 and denying other uh, health issues. I fear that COVID-19 is going to become an excuse 
Um, it stopped so many other essential healthcare services. And for us to recover now is going to be very difficult. We've, we've slid back on people getting um, antiretroviral drugs for ARVs. We've slid back on uh, providing, um, you know, different sorts of healthcare services. For example, there was a woman with cancer who needed a hysterectomy, and we've, we've slid back on providing other more critical healthcare services. And I think that we may be in a worse state, honestly, um, than before. I see. Oh, well. uh, it can be depressing, <laughs> I guess. But again, we are trying to stay optimistic. And let's say in the near future, hypothetically, you are the Minister of Health today. What changes would you put in position? And what would you strive to implement? So it's it's funny. I've had this sort of burst of energy this past six weeks because I've gotten really excited about two things. And the one is reimagining healthcare systems. Um, and the other one is digital health. And look, I've always paid some attention, but somehow in your mind, um, I don't know if it happens to you and your listeners, Leando, but sometimes people like us who live in our minds, you, you sort of just get excited about something at a certain point. Mm. And um, I've always spoken about it. I mean, you know, when we looked at Black Panther and you saw some of the healthcare being delivered in, in Black Panther, or you look at the healthcare being delivered in Iron Man, um, I mean, what's stopping us as a continent from getting to that level? So if I was the Minister of Health, I'd start to, to completely overhaul the healthcare system. It's inefficient from the way things are ordered. It's inefficient in the way things are done. I mean, we're living on a continent where everything is paper-based. In what century are we living <laughs> Um, and then we also, you know, the thing that makes me the most exciting, and the private sector does this well. So, for example, Uber was delivering vaccines, the flu vaccines, to South Africans a while back. Um, you're seeing drones flying blood to patients. So I think that, you know, if, if, if I have the resources and the power at my disposal, I'll say, how can we do things differently? How can we stop saying that a patient needs to come into a health system Instead, saying we need to go to the patient, and we've seen a little bit of it with COVID-19, um, and I think that's where the answer lies: is to completely reimagine and bring Africa up to speed with the modern world. <laughs> yes, and clearly we can also, in a way, overtake it with such as seeing the people like you, I guess, gunning for a brighter future, have those big ideas, we can literally be the frontliners and leading the charge. But I guess we have to stick to what we have today. And as we close off the podcast, I'll just ask you to share a few words in case people have been motivated by you and plan to walk in your shoes. What piece of advice would you give so, yeah, I, I wouldn't know where to start, but I think that life's a journey. Um, don't be impatient. Be patient. Really, you know, as I get older, it's true, you get older and wiser and you start to realize that everything in life happens at the same time. Um, stay in your own lane because I think that sometimes we always try to compete and I've seen how uh, toxicity can kill people's spirit. 
So instead of breaking people down, build them up, and you will see that power that comes out of it. I think it's beautiful and it's incredible having mentored so many young people. And we all can give that gift if we're in certain spaces. It takes 20 minutes of our time. I think be authentic. Um, often we try and conform. Often we worried about our bread and butter, and I've been one of those people, and I'm still one of those people that, you know, got to meet my monthly bills. I'm not rolling in the dough as I wish I was. Um, but you'll be surprised that when you're authentic and when you're standing up for what you want, the money won't come immediately and the salary won't come immediately. But if you stay true to your cause, um, you will be supported and you will find allies in, in, in spaces you never thought. Um, and I guess my final one is, it's difficult. Nothing, absolutely nothing is easy. Um, I tried to be an entrepreneur last year and I failed dismally and I'm trying again. Um, but I think it's important to be visionary and it's important to keep the fire burning. It's all that's going to take us through life. Beautifully said. Dr. Shakira, I would like to thank you so much for joining us on the African Podcast.